Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a new sensation, a fabulous creation, a danceable solution to teenage revolution. Do the strand love. Yeah, you know, I am not going to lie to you when this song started. Uh, I hated it. But people change. The song is Do The Strand by Roxy Music from the 1973 sophomore album For Your Pleasure. It's also number 396 out of 500 on the 500 with me. Josh Adam Myers, the King Cadougal. What's up, Fleece Army? How you guys living this week? We have no idea who won the election because I'm recording this on election day. So hopefully California is not on fire. It probably still is because, you know, there's always fires going on here. But hopefully you are safe. Hopefully you uh, have food, you got your gun, you got your lekka dog, you got whatever you need to stay safe. Crazy times, man. Uh, and I hope and wish for everybody to uh, just to be okay, man. Be okay with whatever happens because, you know, the world's going to keep turning. Music's going to keep being made. Most likely if it's new, it's going to be crappy. New lists are going to come out that are going to completely fuck up the podcast you've been doing for two years. Oh, by the way, we just hit the two-year anniversary, dude. Fuck yeah. I didn't even think about that, man. We just broke 100 episodes. Dude, two years. To everybody out there that listens to this podcast and is joining me on this journey and you're listening to the music, I can't thank you enough. This has been one of the highlights of my life, man. And... uh I'm just so excited to get down this list. It's going to take some time, you know? It's going to take some time. We're going to do it together. We're going to hold each other's hands. We're going to walk in the bush. I don't even think that's a real thing. But, you know, who gives a shit? All right. Podcast theme song contest, guys. We want our listeners, because we know you're musicians, to make a podcast theme song for the 500. And if you are a part of the Patreon, we are going to have you vote for it. So join the Patreon, do the 500 podcast theme song, and send your submissions to 500podcasts at gmail.com. The grand prize winner gets a membership in the 500 Club with free merch and video versions of the show. Join the Patreon, make the theme song. Come on, everybody. November 14th, we're doing a goddamn comedy jam at InCrowd. It's awesome, man. Last month, we had Jim Jeffries. This month, still putting the lineup together, but man, it is completely interactive, completely cool, and uh, so much fun, guys. November 14th, you can get those tickets at joshadammyers.com. You can watch it anywhere in the world, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the goddamn comedy jam. All right, let's find out about this record because, like I said, 
the first song came on, didn't know if I was going to enjoy it. And then, you know, you fucking change. Released on March 23rd, 1973 on Island and Warner Brothers Records and produced by the group Chris Thomas and John Anthony. This is the second album from British glam, prog rock band, Roxy Music. Singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Brian Ferry was influenced by jazz at a super young age until he heard rock and roll. By his teenage years, he was in various bands, and while studying art in college, he formed an R&B band that included two future Roxy Music bassists, Graham Simpson and John Porter. By the late 60s, Brian was getting his degrees and having art exhibits and then started teaching ceramics at girls' school, but was fired in 1970 for playing records in class rather than teaching. So he put out an ad for a keyboardist to join him and bassist Graham Simpson, but he got contacted by music teacher Andy Mackay, a multi-instrumentalist who specialized in saxophone and oboe. However, Andy also owned a VSC-3, which was the first portable modular synthesizer, and he had an experimental non-musician college friend who could operate the VSC-3, owned a reel-to-reel tape machine, and was interested in avant-garde and electronic music. Of course, that was the man himself, Brian Eno, who originally joined as an offstage technical advisor before becoming a member. We'll refer to him from this point on as Eno as to not confuse the two Bryans. They got a drummer and a guitarist and Brian named the band Roxy as a tribute to the old British theaters and dance halls until they found out about an American band with the same name and added music. They made demos and played shows and after losing their drummer, they placed another ad and got Paul Thompson. Dude, one thing for sure about this bio, like placing ads has gotten these motherfuckers a lot of shit. And after unsuccessfully auditioning to be their guitarist, Phil Manzanera joined as their roadie. However, he secretly learned all their songs and when the guitarist they chose quit, Phil stepped right in to become a member. With the band in place, they signed with a management company who financed their debut, which was recorded in a week. The cover art originally impressed Island Records more than the music, but they were signed anyway and their debut was a critical and popular success, reaching number 10 on the UK album chart. Then they recorded and released a standalone single called Virginia Plain, which went to number four and renewed interest in the album. Their eclectic visual style, which was a mix of classic film debonair, rockabilly throwback and outrageously quirky and androgyny, blew minds and made them vanguards of the nascent glam rock scene. They were retro and futuristic at the same time. Bassist Graham Simpson left after their debut, and after an intern bassist came and went, Brian's old roommate John Porter guested for this album. He would later go on to produce Brian, as well as many other artists, including The Smiths, and the band would rarely have a permanent bassist again. Like their debut, Brian once again wrote all the songs for the follow-up, and they spent more time exploring elaborate production techniques. Also, like their debut... Despite neglecting to release any album tracks as singles, it did great. It went to number four on the UK charts and stayed there for 27 weeks, further cementing their reputation as influencers, not just to musicians, but to fashion designers, visual artists, writers, and an entire movement like glam and punk rock. Despite it often being considered the best of their albums, it would be Brian Eno's last record with the band as he left after the tour to pursue a solo career due to acrimony and creative differences with Brian Ferry. While other members felt similarly, they toughed it out. Eno was replaced and Brian allowed other members to contribute to the songwriting for their next albums. Their popularity and success grew with each new release and even Eno recognized and acknowledged the quality of the records after he left. That sounds like such an Eno thing to do. Probably wearing a kimono when he did it. 
Brian would go on to epitomize suave Euro sophistication with Roxy Music and on concurrent solo albums that showcased his flair for reinterpretation of classic songs. In fact, his first solo album came out seven months after this. Roxy Music would continue to make six more studio albums and have several breakups until their live festival reunions in 2005, which led to them recording new material that included Eno, baby. But after a 40th anniversary tour, the band essentially disbanded, and the new music has so far been abandoned. And in 2019, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and most of the post-Eno classic version of the band performed. So perhaps there might be another chapter to the Roxy Music saga. And guess what? Today, I have somebody that is so influenced, so changed, so in love with this band. It's just, this is why, this is what we play for. This is it. This moment. John Taylor from Duran Duran. If you don't know who John Taylor is or Duran Duran, man, you got a view to a kill. Because I am hungry like a wolf. And I'm going to Rio. I'm a huge fan of Duran Duran, but more importantly, man, I'm a huge fan of anybody that that lives a band, that loves a band, that can talk about a band the way that John did. Dude, super charismatic, so dreamy. I'm not gay, but dude, I considered it for a moment. This is why we do the podcast. I couldn't thank him enough for coming on. I really think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you're listening on Stitcher or Apple, please leave a five-star rating and leave a review. I'm begging you guys, please do that. Help a brother out. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Go to my website, joshadammyers.com for all my shows, clips, all the cool stuff. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Jam, run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but here we go. With number 396 out of 500, with full your pressure, Bob Roxy Music. So I don't know if you know this, but well, one, I, I already said how much of a big fan I was before we got started, but I'm literally looking at it right now, the Outside Lands 2006 poster with uh, both you and me on the bill because I was on the comedy stage. Oh, nice. And you guys were on the main stage. Not going to lie, though. You guys crushed it, but you didn't play one of my favorite songs in the history of the world, which I'm going to get to later. Hmm. Okay. Which I know you didn't do that on purpose, because if you would have known how big of a fan I was mm. of of you guys, you you probably would have been like, oh, we got to play this for Josh. I mean, he's in the audience. He's on the bill. Does happen. It happens. And I'm not, dude, dude, no harm, no foul. And we're going to dive deep into that track a little bit later. But tell me about your relationship with Roxy Music. Tell, take me through your story with this band. Well, it's definitely a love story. And it's definitely the kind of love story that could have only happened in the early 70s. Uh, It could have only happened if you lived in suburbia and you were 12. You know, Roxy Music came along in uh, 1972 and they were extraordinarily exotic. You know, they I think it's hard to 
for anybody today to really get a sense of what they were. You really had to, you know, I was thinking this morning about this album. I, I was, you know, I was thinking in some ter- terms of some platitudes and it's almost, it's like you really had to be there, you know, and, you know, this is at a point in time when rock is everything, you know, so, so music that matters, all the music that matters is ba- being made by groups of almost always men. And, you know, the most interesting ones, uh, most interesting ensembles are ones that have a multiple, multiple layers of interesting musicians. And, you know, you know, whether, you know, you use the Beatles as the beginning point for that. And by the time you get to Roxy Music, you really have one of the most eclectic uh, bunches of, of, of individuals to ever sort of come together on, on, on one album. And, and the first Roxy Music album, which had come out the year before, uh, well, we're talking about that, my bad. We're talk, the first Roxy Music album, which came out in 1972, was very much a sort of manifesto of minds. And the first time I heard them or saw them, actually was on Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops was the sort of go-to British pop show in the 70s. And it's where we saw, you know, Queen for the first time, Rod Stewart for the first time, Bowie for the first time, you know. And, um, and, and, and uh, Virginia Plain was the first Roxy Music single. And, you know, Le- Virginia Plain is less of like a great song as a great sort of unpacking of these individual musical voices. And, um, you know, you, it's three minutes of like, wow, what is that guy doing? What is that guy doing? What's that guy wearing? You know, it's powerful and it's driving and interesting, but mostly it's like, who the hell are these guys and what planet did they come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So were you, are we, did you already have like the idea in your head that you were going to go on to be a musician or did like seeing them kind of just go, oh shit, like I want to do that. Oh. like. God, no. I mean, I was 12. I could barely ride my bike at this point. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm just becoming a fan. I mean, Roxy taught me like it was like one of the first times in my life with that first record of theirs where I was like, I have to have this. I have to own this. I cannot wait for the radio to play it whenever I have to get this. I have to get on my bike. I have to get all my money, rob my piggy bank you know, and find the nearest record store that, that, that has it. And I brought it home and I've still got it. It's in the other room. And to me at that point, this seven inch round thing, black thing made out of, you know, vinyl just becomes, you know, a fetishistic object. And you get to choose when you hear it as opposed to waiting, you know, by the ra- for the radio to play it. Uh, it it's, it's a very difficult concept for the, for people today that perhaps didn't grow up on that kind of limited accessibility uh, to understand because, you know, you really had to, you had to figure out how you could obtain this thing. It was going to cost you money and you had to find the store that sold it. Um, but, you know, once what's you- What's a record cost? Wait, what's a record cost back then? Like, what are they charging? Oh, I think it was about f- seven and six. So it was probably around 50 cents. 50 cents? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the exchange rate. I was yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> something something around that. somebody's whole anthology. <laughs> yeah. It's so it's so like what else are you listening to at the time? Like cuz I just want to know like like did this hearing Roxy music and listen, I I'm not going to lie. Like this is the first Roxy music record I've ever listened to. 
I'd heard about him. I had known about him. But through this journey, like we got introduced to Brian Eno with uh, Another Green World. And then what was the other record that we did besides that one? Oh, here come the warm jets. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that that came right after this. Yeah. So we, so that's like, that's like my first introduction to what, in a sense, isn't Roxy, but at least has the components of it. So, so for you at that time, like what else are you digging at the time? I've spent my early years like connecting with the Beatles, like the Beatles just, you know, I was too young to be like a fan, but the Beatles were in the airwaves. You know, you couldn't go a day without hearing a song by the Beatles throughout the entire 60s. Still can't. (laughs) And they kind of conditioned me, I think, to 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 understanding oh you know when vo- voices work together they create this sound that is just you know and when the bass and drums you know they just gave me this sort of basic primer in the way that you know rock works pop works and i think by the time i'm 11 i'm 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 trying to find something that can be my own i actually had a had a cousin who was 5 years older than me and he was i mean i was an only ch- i'm an only child but i had this cousin and i used to look up to him you know i used to you know trail him on his on his on his newspaper route and, and, you know, hang out with him whenever he'd let me. And he was really into albums and he turned me on to Bowie. I was with him when he he just got hunky dory. He was a big fan of Rod Stewart and the faces. And then, you know, and really through, through TV, you know, I just started, I, the glam thing definitely, definitely appealed to me. I mean, the, the, the water, the level was pretty high for sort of, glam oriented pop in the early 70s um but um you know and you know and always in the background there was soul there was motown motown was huge in uh, in the uk but i felt that like roxy had a way of bringing it all together you know i, I think that all of those you know the british glam movement which really was the precursor to the punk scene uh, later in the 70s it, whether it was Gary Glitter or, or whomever or Queen, it, it had this acknowledgement of 50s rock and roll that like had gone away by the by the 80s. Um, it was still you could hear it. You know, you can hear Shana Na in, 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 all, in Roxy Music's early records. You know, you can hear the platters. You know, you can hear that kind of thing, which I mean, I didn't know all of that stuff. Here's the other point is that Brian Ferry significantly would put out a solo album. I mean, the prolific prolificity the prolificness of these guys at this point i mean i was just looking this album came out in march 73 the next roxy music album would come out in six months time and in between he's going to put out his first solo record these foolish things and he did this he kind of invented the covers album with these yeah, foolish he did like things. what sinatra does yeah yeah, he, yeah. so like, he was the first guy to sort of like lay out all of his influences right there so i'd be i got this album i'm like oh the beach boys oh Smokey robinson oh you know or uh, um leslie gore you know i mean all these like songs that now i know to be great classics of the pop canon but at that time i had no idea who these people were and brian's sort of saying hey this is what i'm into you know this is where i'm getting my inspiration sure Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So, all right. So, so you listen to the first record, you listen to the single that they put out, and, and now they're starting to get some real attention. Like, tell me about your first experience with this record, with For Your Pleasure. Um, well, the single, uh, they put out a single in earlier in the year called Pajama Rama, which was very jaunty, very kind of kind of throwaway, really, but but very fun. Didn't lose them any fans. I don't know that it particularly gained them any. Um, I, you know, I, I honestly, I'm I'm not sure when I first heard this album the, the 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 next couple of years are going to be for me like there's going to be so much music i'm going to be digesting so much music um one thing i will say about this album that got my that that i i remember thinking when i first had it and i still feel it now is that it's very much an album of two sides and that the first side of the album the first five songs really satisfy any fan's needs for a follow-up to the first album. The second side is very much like there's these art rock detours, like a couple of the songs sound way too long for my tastes. I mean, I was 12, 13. And there's there's kind of experimentation. And what you've got, I wrote down A Tale of Two Brian's, an album of two sides. And you've really got this, this dynamic uh, between like an art rock experimental band and and a song sing a songwriter driven pop band and that's really like it's like the, the the band is showing we really can't be both of these things we've got to be either or and you know within a couple of months of this album coming out eno would be gone fairy's got the reins and from then on they really become about you know carving out these really beautifully crafted pop pop records you know yeah that's what's so crazy that you just said that because because let's just dive into the album because i the second i heard do the strand yeah i was like this this is this is fucking here comes the warm jets this is this is eno that's all i felt was that eno vibe all right uh start the uh play the intro jeremiah there's a new sensation Not going to lie, when this started, I was like, I think I'm going to hate this record. Just that initial intro, it just, I was like, ugh, I was expecting, I was, because, you know, full disclosure, I was expecting more like Bowie. I was expecting more like T-Rex, because everybody's saying that Roxy Music is the glam scene. And and so when this started, I, I just wasn't feeling it. Now, that being said, I've listened to this album probably eight, nine times since I've I've started going over it. And this song has really grown on me. So tell me, tell me about your experience with this song. How does it make you feel? Well, do the strand again. You kind of had to be there. You know, it was it was very much a rallying song for Roxy Music fans. You know, I always think first albums 
don't really make fans. They make interested parties. Second albums make fans. It's where the listener doubles down and says, I freaking love this band or I love this guy. You know, where the first album's like, yeah, this guy, this is interesting. Yeah, it's cool. But you don't know where it's going to go. And the second album comes along and you're like, oh, yeah, this is a, <laughs> this is a party I want to go to. You know, this is a scene I want to be a, a part of. And this is what Ferry was so great at. He was saying, this is the scene. He was like, he was the educator. You know, Ferry's a very, cult, he's a culture vulture. He's probably the greatest culture vulture in music. He was very well read, like artistically. He was, you know, he'd gone to art college. He'd studied under Richard Hamilton, who was a, who would become a, a, a very important pop artist on, in, in England. And he brings all of that, you know, he was like, he was like one of the 10 guys in, in the UK who drove a Studebaker, who drove an American car. He was totally obsessed with, you know, I, <laughs> he, he was obsessed with all of these kind of cultural idioms, if you like, 20th century, modern cultural idioms. And he's quoting all of these dances. He's like, I'm going to write a song like The Twist. You know, I'm going to write a song about a dance. I'm going to invent a dance. And all of my fans are going to do the strand. How do we do the strand? Well, you know, we're going to have to find a way. But he's going to tell us a lot of things that it's not along the way. It's not the tango. You know, it's not the fandango. You know, it's not the begin. It's the strand. And kind of like by the time the song is finished, you know, you're on board. And I had it on a T-shirt and I had a, I had a lapel pin badge with it on. Interesting, though, that you say about Eno because – I kind of feel that Eno underplays throughout this album. And I feel that, like, actually, particularly this first side, and Brian has written the songs, he's like, no, we're not an experimental band. This is a band that is going to be centered upon my writing, and I'm going to show you just how well I can write. And I just think the way – it's like this song, it's like – it's like he is Dylan's son with this, you know, because whereas he's, whereas Dylan's in, whereas Dylan could riff and riff and riff upon about, you know, the issues of the late 1960s, this is very riffing on the issues of mid of the early 70s. It's a different world, and and this is the world of glamour and beauty queens and 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 phone sex and all sorts of things that like you know wasn't going on in the 60s. And I and I think that, you know, there's actually, I counted it out. I wouldn't normally do this, but there's a 32-bar instrumental break in this song. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And really what you're thinking is, oh, this is the bit where Eno's meant to do his Eno stuff. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. And it's very low key. It almost sounds too long. And I'm, and I'm almost feeling like, you know, Eno, he was already, his head was out of the door in a way. He was thinking, you know, this... You know, I don't get to do enough. I'm not going to get to do enough because, you know, you mentioned Here Come the Warm Jets. And again, within a few months of this album coming out, Here, Here Come the Warm Jets would be out. And I mean, the ideas on that record, I mean, Eno was, has never been short of ideas. It's not, because he, it's not because he doesn't have ideas. It's just because 
you know, and we'll talk about this, but the musical personalities, Andy Mackay, Phil Manzanera, are so strong in this band that, that the real estate, the musical real estate is really tight. And I, and I just feel like it, that example of that break in Do The Strand, which I feel is just like an Eno moment, gone to waste. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so fans of their popular first single, Virginia Plain, from their debut, responded to this as a similarly upbeat dance song. You, you nailed it. Every single thing I was going to say, I was going to mention the twist, the jerk. Uh, for what I found is that this is Brian Ferry's attempt at ri- uh, writing in a witty style of like Cole Porter. Uh, and, and like you said, the, con- the contemporary cultural highbrow references, he really is showing his intellect. But this is also a reinvention, too. So I wanted to ask you about a reinvention. Uh, when and how did you transform from Nigel in the glasses to John? <laughs> How did you make that show? Oh, man, it was around about, well, I think it was really playing on stage regularly, you know, and sweating, you know, and glasses are just a pain. And, you know, and it took a girl, I admit, it took a, a girl that was I, that was way out of my league to say to me, I don't know how she caught me without glasses. I think we were doing some photos or something. She said, you look really good without glasses. You should get contact lenses. <laughs> <laughs> like within 24 hours, you know, the piggy bank had been raided again. You know, this time, this time for contact lenses. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, that's actually, re- that's really funny that you, that you say that because the next song on the record is Beauty Queen. And see, this is where I really started to fall in love with the record and the band. Uh, Peter, uh, play 134. I love this. You're swimming through lies. In sea breezes, they flutter. The coconut tears, heavy lidded they shed, swaying palms at your feet. You're the pride of your street, while you worship the sun. Oh my God, kill it! That is just so gorgeous. This probably is my favorite moment on the whole record. I I just love Brian's shimmering vibrato over that electric keyboard. And uh, it's funny that because you already mentioned his solo record. This is Brian's first attempt at a crooning ballad, and it's also something of a dear Jane letter uh, to let a lover go. I-, I love this song, man. I don't see how you could listen to this and not feel something. So tell me about how you feel. Well, about you it. called it. You mentioned Cole Porter earlier, and I think that's a really in- that's a really interesting parallel. Coconut tears, heavy lidded, they shed you know there's the the palms again he's he's alluding to a way of life brian ferry was like the son of a coal miner you know i don't think there is a greater sort of you know in terms of like uh, what do we call it you know when you go you go up aspirational you know aspiration an aspirant in rock you know this is a guy that you know he's been in london for a couple of years and he's already seeing himself on the beach at, at, at sun, sunset, you know, with the beautiful girl out of the glossy magazine. You know, he's thinking about a house in the country. He's driving an American car. You know, all of these things, all of these concerns. I mean, I think it says something about the comfortability that, that society has found itself in, you know, that we're not being, you know, we're not being driven by the concerns of 1969, you know, there's a certain comfort has come to pass that allows 
for a singer-songwriter like Brian Ferry to sing lyrics like this, and, and he doesn't get cancelled. You know, that actually this is speaking to a new generation. Certainly I was one of them, 12-year-old boy in suburban Birmingham. He is painting pictures for me that I'm thinking that's where I want to go. I mean, if ever there's a lyric that precurses Rio, it's this, because it's very much speaking to the, that idea. Before the 70s, the, you know, in working class Englishmen, just like working class Americans, were not going abroad on holidays. They were not seeing palm trees. You only ever saw a palm tree on the television, you know, or in a, or in a movie. So, you know, the idea that you could insert yourself into that world. And I think Brian was, it was really important because he, he lifted everybody up. He wasn't, he owned his roots. I mean, there's a, there's a line in Do the Strand where he says Eskimos and Chinese do the strand. But he would always sing Eskimos and Geordies because a Geordie is from Newcastle. And that was always like a moment when everybody from the north in the, in the audience would go, yeah, you know. They, again, they, they had that. I mean, for our, I always love, we call it high-low. It's like high as aspirational, but it's rooted in, it's, root, it's rooted in, it's got this core. It's, it's, it's not highfalutin. You know what I mean? It, it's kind of, it speaks to, it speaks to the working guy. And, and Roxy had a way of doing that. It was really interesting. They were all about, you know, leaving your factory job, going home, getting dressed up, putting on your dad's suit, <laughs> you know, and, and going out and try and, and tasting a martini for the first time. A little bit like James Bond, actually, in that sense, that same kind of, the same kind of cultural salesmanship if you like sure sure uh can i before we even move on to the next track can you come on every week and just review <laughs> these records because you are fucking killing it dude well Good god thanks just I the usage of just your vocabulary is, <laughs> i'm like oh my god i'm like no please john keep talking i don't even want well, to say we're not anything talking about roxy music here you know 100 <laughs> um all right moving on to strictly confidential uh so this song played like a gothic suicide note or maybe like a lament of depression and existential dread it's opening with Andy McKay's mournful oboe, and then you have Brian's quivering falsetto. Uh, Peter, play a little bit. Counting the cost of money only Strikes me as funny, don't you know? Tongue-tied with thread I, I, this is probably one of the saddest songs on the record. Uh, and to quote, uh, we had a, we had a Harry Shearer on uh, from, aka Nigel Tufnell from Spinal Tap. Uh, this is one of the saddest of all keys, the D minor. Uh, just a fantastic song. I love when Paul Thompson starts banging on the drums and then Phil starts ripping those guitar licks. It's just, it just gets bigger and bigger. And I just, uh, this is phenomenal. So tell me your thoughts. Well, Andy Mackay, you know, sax saxophone, oboe, and clarinet. I mean, one of the great colorists of 70s rock. I mean, I mean, he has a, a way of kind of underscoring fairies singing in a way that is so provocative. It's so poetic. I mean, 
it's it was a real treat for me it's been a while since i listened to this album and it's been a real treat to go back and listen to it again and understand why it moved me the way that it did you know it's very lit it's very literate in its way you know it's not it's not pump you know like progressive and i and i like progressive rock as much as the next man but it, it doesn't have it doesn't wear its classical you know like andy mckay is a classically trained musician he can quote bach if he needs to but it's not he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't play those cards very often it's just it's just a warmth and it's this sort of i don't know it's just this musicality that you find in very few bands and because roxy have got this slightly kitschy kind of garage band element to them they never overplay it it, you never feel like you're being, I mean, just this, the sound of this song, the sound of this song, it's got a very kind of trashy kind of sound to it. It's not, it does, it's, it's not overproduced at all. The other thing, while we're talking about musicians, I just want to give a shout out to John Porter. The bass playing on this album is amazing. I mean, anybody that knows me, you know, like as a bass player, the rock, the bass player story in Roxy Music is a fascinating one because they never... You know, they, they were constantly changing their bass players. They seemed to have like, they had like a bass player issue. And John Porter was brought in by Brian. He was the guitar player in Brian's old band. He's not even a bass player. He came in and for me, the bass playing on this album is so perfect. He would go on to produce The Smiths and The Cure. Okay, so, so that's how much musicality we've got going on here, right? But, but also, but also, I want to say this though, and because I want to say this is like because, but like, how much did he influence you? Because your style is so funky, man. Like your bass licks are just funky, and and nothing against uh, him, but it, it's just like like so. So how much are you pulling from this in your own playing? Well, uh, you know, I think it just got. I, you know, I didn't identify. I mean, I didn't get the bass player story in Roxy until until later. Um, I didn't identify with, uh, again, you know, there's, you know, the album cover art, you know, the first couple of, first few albums, actually, they make a big deal of like the five guys. There's these five really strange, but cool looking guys. There's no bass player. They don't, the bass player is never represented on the, on the cover of the record. He's like, he's the add on, if you like. But I think, I think it's just, you know, I mean, you know, when you when you're listening to music of this quality, you know, you're just going to pick up, you know, you're just going to start picking up. And even though it was punk rock that would ultimately inspire me to pick up a bass and think that I could maybe be a player without any training or musical knowledge. I had this background, you know, I had a background and uh, an appreciation of of music like this, of records like this, where it. it you know, where again, the bass is, it's not overplayed, but every, every note, it sounds like it's been thought of, you know, it's been thought through. For sure. So, so I guess I have to ask then, so then, so then, so that funky style of bass playing that you do, so is this, are you like Brothers Johnson, Chic, like, like where, where are you getting the funkiness from then? You, not, not, not Roxy, you brother. Well, yeah, for me, I mean, you know, punk rock, like everybody was playing guitar punk you know the pistols the clash it was it was like a a a guitar player's medium you know and um and i i kind of saw myself as a guitar player but as we as this as the band kind of evolved and this is still before we met simon Lebon, but nick and i 
and now we've got Roger playing drums and we're just kind of evolving our sound. And I'm thinking that I want to, that I want the rhythm section to be a real rhythm section, you know, which you didn't really have in punk and um, chic were really, it was chic that I heard and I'm li- and, and disco and I'm listening to these chic in particular, you know, not knowing that, well, Hey, you're noticing because Bernard Edwards is probably the most important bass player of the seventies. I haven't, I don't know that at this point. I'm just listening to these string of songs like everybody dance and good times. And I'm thinking, wow, I love, I, I can really hear the bass. Yeah. And, and not only that, but like all great music, dummies like me think, I think I could do a really like basic interpretation of that. And that's the thing about disco. There were one, one or two real easy, you know, it's easy to play disco. You know, there's some sort of fundamental things that you could pick up on. And, and you insert that into like ostensibly a sort of white rock st- structure and you've got something kind of interesting. And, um, and I mean, I wasn't the only one thinking like that because really all the post-punk era music like joy division for example you know they're thinking about bass and drums that's probably like you too you know they're like they've got the punk rock top layer but but the rhythm section are actually playing like they're thinking like a rhythm section which you didn't get with that first layer of punk bands everybody's just going bam everybody's just trying to sync up with with the guitar player basically um but you know by 78 people are thinking hey we've got to make the you know, the rhythm section groove, you know, we want people to dance to it. Yeah, for sure, dude. All right. Uh, moving on. Editions of you. Uh, this is almost proto punk rock. This yes. Kind of like pre pre yes. new wave. Absolutely. But also, also with a, with a very velvet underground feel to it as well. Uh, Peter play two fifteen. <laughs> I love that. I love that solo section. I love uh, how it moves through with the sax to the synth freakout, uh, and then the machine gun drums. It's just Fucking phenomenal. A. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a master. Cl- the way that you, I, I wrote that down because the way it go, it starts with Andy on the sax, then Eno picks it up, then Manzanera brings in that feedback note. I mean, I've I've dropped the needle on that on that spot so many times, and. Yeah, and 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 then the, the and then the drum fill. I mean, I really feel Paul Thompson is actually second to Bonham as the grooviest English rock drummer of all time, and I think he's very underestimated. He had a way of swinging, which very few. I mean, Ian Pace as well. You can hear that in his playing, um, but he is phenomenal. Very always called him out as the great Paul Thompson, and another Geordie actually. So you kind of, again, and, you know, I always find, I find band dynamics interesting. I mean, I've had to think about them a lot over the years. And I think about the chemistry of my own band a lot. And, you know, and, and, and how, you know, and I've always, you know, and I'm still a fan, quite frankly, of, of band music, of ensemble music, where you've got four or five voices. And they were interesting voices, and they have to figure out a way of working together or else it's just a mess. I find that way more interesting than, you know, music that's usually been made by one mind with a bunch of samples. I just find that push and pull dynamic. And this is like, you know, Ferry was very generous, I feel in this sense, you know, he, he knew he was the singer of the band, but he, and, and, and Brian said, 
and I know there is no bigger fan of Brian than I, but he's not the greatest. He's no Jagger. You know, he's no Rod. He's no Freddie. He's pretty within himself on stage. So he knows that the band needs to really play out if they're going to be a big band. And, um, you know, I mean, they're just so exciting. And the way that they, they learn to trade, you know, from Eddie Riff, Andy Mackay, when he was playing the sort of, the, the, the kind of uh, rock and roll riffs, like on Editions of You, that was Eddie Riff. He had this alter ego that was doing the, that was doing the saxophone honking. Um, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter now, but it mattered when you were 12. <laughs> oh, I can imagine what that yeah. would be like hearing that at 12, dude. It's just the song, the song rips. It's like at this point, I'm already in love with the record now. And, and it's just to hear them take this direction. It's just like you just like grab a hold and you're just like, yeah, dude, like I'm, wherever they're going, like I could give a shit. I'm with them. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Uh, and then that takes us into the next song, uh, In Every Dream, Home, A Heartache. Uh, this was influenced by a massive collage by one of Brian's art teachers. This is about the vapidness of material excess that segues into a vivid description of his relationship with a blow-up doll over the same four chords. And then after this long, slow burn, the punchline happens and we get a good old 70s glam rock vamp out. Uh, do you remember when I said a few moments ago that uh, that song had my favorite moment on the album? This is this. You were actually you were mistaken. It's this one. I lied. Kick it, Peter. Immortal and life size. My breath is inside you. I'll dress you up daily and keep you till death size. Inflatable doll, lover ungrateful. Oh my fucking god! <laughs> Take my money! Take my money! <laughs> I, I, I just love it. I, I love it. It's got this like dark strawberry fields forever vibe to it that just it's just so great and then when they they really just i mean they just take it in the level and there's so many great lines in this song your skin is like vinyl deluxe and delightful yeah it's just it's incredible tell me about your thoughts well he's definitely using words in a way that nobody to my knowledge had used before you know i mean again dylan's influence on brian is huge you know, and that sort of free associative kind of, you know, just like building on, you know, not really going to a chorus, just a hard range. You know, he's just like spilling out this stuff. But 
but what but his head is clearly in this place which is very like you mentioned art rock you know richard hamilton who i mentioned before who who Brian was very much aware of his work and he had he had made this sort of seminal piece called Just What Is It That Makes Today's Homes So Different, So Appealing? And, you know, Richard Hamilton said that, you know, modern man, you know, identifies with cinema, TV, telephone, cars, domestic appliances, <laughs> space, history and humanity. And he and Brian's got all of these things going on, uh, you know, interestingly enough. And I love this song since I first heard it. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Roxy played their set and they opened with this song. And I stood there and I said, no, not this one, not now. <laughs> and, and you know, and so there is something to be said for like the Brian, this sort of 26 year old Brian Ferry singing this lyric in 1972 and it being an absolute masterstroke and it not working so well when you sing it, you know, in your 60s. You know, and, and that is no, you know, I'm just like, I'm just saying, I notice these things. And like, there are so many fabulous songs that are more, shall we say, age appropriate. But that's not what art is about. Art speaks to the moment. And, you know, in 1972, again, we go back to this generation of suburban kids. I mean, I made some of my bet some of my dearest friends at, at a Roxy Music gig. I made friends that you know, I, I kept for years, you know, Nick and I, we, that we became, we transcended, <laughs> you know, we became a member of the Roxy club and, um, you know, they were, there was just something the way that they spoke to kids of a certain age, boys of a certain age, Roxy have always been really a boys band, even though Brian, you know, there was a few years where he was a pinup. Um, they kind of spoke to boys in just the way that The Clash would speak to boys five years later. You know, it's, it's interesting what, you know, at, at that point in time, I mean, I didn't know what a freaking blow-up doll was, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, and I couldn't Google it, you know. But I knew it was exotic, and I knew it was sexy, and I knew that I probably had to turn it down when, it, when the song came on, because if my dad walked in heard. he'd be like <laughs> <laughs> which is great right i mean that's how oh my that's god you feel like be. yeah you feel like you shouldn't be listening to it you feel you like you're like feel like a little adult at 12 13 14 years old uh, which is also funny because i don't there's there's a song off of outlandas day amour where where the police i think kind of are, are influenced by this because it's they have a song about having sex with a blow-up doll as well so but i wanted to talk about objects of desire so right as MTV was exploding into the world, you guys showed up, perfect timing. How did it feel when you learned that you were becoming a teen heartthrob pop idol? Oh, how did it feel? It felt, it felt great. <laughs> uh, I mean, it wasn't like it was expected, you know, like, as, like you mentioned earlier, you know, I hadn't had the glasses off for long. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, we were really just looking for ways to get our music out there. Um, so, you know, if we could get our faces in like teen pinup magazines, why not? I mean, you know, it was all it was all game. I, I think the other thing that Roxy that I can align Duran's arc with the Roxy arc is, again, on For Your Pleasure, you're li listening to a band that has spent like a year on the road, you know, or, or maybe six months on the road. A band that has recorded its first album, probably after playing 20 gigs, 
you know, which is kind of like the Duran story. I mean, we had these songs. We went out and played as few. We just, All we wanted was a record deal. It wasn't like, let's just tour, 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 and then maybe get a record deal. It's how can we get a record deal from the moment we came together? So you do as little as you can to get that record deal. But then once you've got a record company behind you, you're off on the road and you're playing. I mean, I, I, one of the stories is that Roxy Music came to America and they opened for Jethro Tull at Madison Square Gardens and got like everything thrown at them. You know, and they, it was a very negative experience for them. But, you know, you're getting out there and you're learning how to play in a way that you, you didn't before. And sort of the band that showed up to record Rio was a very different band that, had, that showed up to record our first album. And I think you feel that you feel that on this whole first side and it's there's so much meat on this first side you know and we're talking about sides like hello remember albums had an a and a b and all i can say is i wore out side a of this album i did not wear out side b and side a side because also side a is just entirely satisfying it's like you get to the end of uh, every dream of my heart and you're like wow what an amazing album Oh, there's another side. (laughs) 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 So we're now venturing into the, to the side that you didn't listen to now as much as much. All right. Well, let's, well, I can see why, because it opens up with the longest song on the album and it's this trance like groove, uh, really influenced by the contemporary, like kraut rock band, uh, can, and this came together in the studio after the band was trying to develop something sinister without forcing it. But after drummer Paul Thompson and bassist John Porter added an almost upbeat, insistent reggae feel, Eno added spooky synths, and Andy Mackay played a repeating and moving atonal saxophone line, and it became dark but still sort of danceable. Uh, Peter, play a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is completely different than everything we've just been listening yeah, to. Yeah, it's super cool, you know. And uh, you know, again, the drum. Yep, as you mentioned, the drum. I mean, all the musicians are doing, you know, doing good, good things. Um, it's it's just a different. It requires a different kind of appreciation, I think. And um, you know, I actually looked up the meaning of bogus this <laughs> before we did this. And I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if Brian's writing this about Eno. What I found about the lyrics is uh, these are all stories that Brian came up with, uh, the lyrics after vacantly staring at a muted TV for weeks. But, but finish your thought. I didn't mean to cut you off. You think? No, I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, yes, it's, I, I, I feel like the, uh, the chassis, if you like, the rhythm section is almost like, uh, I, I, thank you for letting me be myself again, the Sly and the Family Stone track. I feel it has that kind of a, a rollout to it. Apparently it was a jam that they'd had since before recording the first album. It was just something that they went back to. So it kind of feels like maybe we don't, we've kind of run out of songs. It's feeling a little fillery to me. Um, but I think that really just speaks to the quality of the songs on the first side. Because like you've quoted, I mean, all the, every song on the first side has very quotable lyrics. They're all funny, cool, clever. You know, this one, it's like, eh, you know, okay, the bogus man is on his way. It's just not as, not as sharp. 
So it's funny that you're saying this. So many people consider this not just to be uh, a twist on the disturbed uh, boogeyman, but Brian uh, could be trying to come to grips with his own subconscious. Uh, And Eno (laughs) thought it was the most successful song on here because in his words, uh, in quotes, it's the one on which the band is most obviously working together and it's also got a lot of discipline. So, you know, I, I mean, you know, I could see this being way more up Eno's alley uh, in terms of the band. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were talking earlier. It's like, what is Roxy Music? Is it an art rock experiment or is it a, is it a songwriter driven pop machine? You know, and, and, and this side, it's going to let go. It's going to say, look, we could have been this kind of a band, but <laughs> we aren't going to be. Uh, we don't know that yet. Um, and I understand why Eno feels that way because, you know, I, was, I, I, I did write, write down, I wrote Eno, detached and dispassionate, very passionate and intimate. You know, it's like Eno's a genius, but he's, he's an intellectual. He's an elitist. God bless him. He's the mo- probably the, the most important studio musician of my lifetime. Um, but, you know, he's, he's detached. You know, he's, he's a genius. But Brian... Where's he? He's a heart on his sleeve guy. Everything has to feel for Brian. Brian's all about creating moments of feeling. Yes, I, I, I see why Eno would feel that way about this track because it's like a precursor to remain in light or, or, or something like that. A track that really, you know, Eno gets to really groove out on. Um, I mean, it's in no way, it's not, it's not dissatisfying. I mean, it, it, it's very satisfying, but you're just not going to play it the way you played the songs on the first side. Yeah, no, completely. All right, so I want to, I want to, I want to go a little bit darker. But uh, in your autobiography, uh, in the pleasure groove, love, death, and Duran Duran, about your bogus years of losing yourself in addiction, uh, me uh, also suffering with. I've I've been off for about four years now and and going strong. But I, I wanted to ask you. When did you first realize that you had a serious issue with substance abuse? (laughs) I'm going to tie that into Roxy Music. Please, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the first Duran Duran tour of Germany, we we went to Munich and um, we went to this nightclub and uh, called the Sugar Shack, and Roxy Music were there, and it was the first time I'd ever met them. And and Brian Ferry brought brought us drinks, and um, that same night we got so trashed, the drummer and I, he got into a fight. And I ended up putting my fist through a plate glass light fixture in, in, in the hotel in the Munich Hilton. It was, it was a low point. It was a low point. But, you know, did it change me? No. You know, did I see, well, maybe if you hadn't have been off your face, you wouldn't have done something so stupid. You know, canceled shows, canceled tours. And, um, you, know, my, you know, the way I perceived myself was never the same again because we had to bring in a pickup bass player who like learned my parts in like an hour, the pig, you know, and then, <laughs> and then I had to watch from the side of the stage as the band performed without me. So, you know, around about that time, I've had a good run. I've had maybe 18 months of fun with alcohol and drugs, maybe at the most. And now I'm thinking, Ooh, you know, maybe, you know, starting to ask questions about the way that I use alcohol and drugs. And, uh, and I can see these guys, my brothers in the band, and I can see they're not having the same issues, shall we say, that I'm having. 
but you know it would be a couple more years i mean i in my mid 20s i think i acknowledged that i had a problem with drugs it's one thing to acknowledge you've got a problem with drugs but it's another another thing again to acknowledge you've got a problem with alcohol cuz alcohol's everywhere everywhere, everywhere yeah it's one thing not to pick up the phone and drive over to the other side of town to meet your dealer but like to have to avoid booze it's like lock me in my bedroom and tell me when it's all over it's very hard you know so so it would be you know it would be a few years but you know we have to go through not to proselytize but there's sort of stages of addiction and alcoholism that you have to go through in order to surrender you know you've got to you, you've got to have these experiences um but you know the boys in duran duran we were all very we all came from very similar backgrounds you know we all had the same if you looked at a photograph of my house it was the same as simon's house it was the same as roger's house it was the same as andy's house and we all essentially had the same kind of we came from the same socio economic background and and so we saw the world similarly you know um but i definitely found that uh, there was a difference in the way that um I was you parted. Yeah. 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 I was that's I'm the same way, which is actually funny because I actually quit drinking 14 years ago, but it was the drugs. It was pills. That was really the hard thing to get off. But but yeah, it's like uh, I, I can only imagine, especially having that like English upbringing where there's pubs everywhere and, you, and you're watching soccer and you're just like everybody's drinking and, and being out on the road. So, yeah, man, dude, I'm glad you're here, bro. Thank you. You too. This, and I love how you, you tied that into rocks and music, <laughs> dude. That was fucking dope. All right. Uh, Grey Lagoons. Uh, this was on the first Roxy Music demo before the record deal. 50s rock and roll revivalism was really popular in the early 70s and similar to Would You Believe off their debut. This was another bit of nostalgia. Uh, Peter, play the intro. Blue suns and Grey Of starfish with honey All these and more to choose if you. This is like glam gospel to me. Well, that's Eno, actually. You know, and that's one of the things I kind of. You know, I, I realized, I listened to that and I thought, actually, I, I, I would miss that later on, you know, because Eno has always been good at that doo-wop vocal, those stacked harmony harmony things. And he, he loves that kind of stuff. And it was a big, big part of the first album style. I, I didn't know that this song was was dated, dated back to the first album, but it makes sense because it could be on the first album. And... Um, you know, it's got that fantastic double time section where, you know, again, again, it's palm trees. It's walking on the beach at sunset, midnight, you know, again, again, like sending those signals down the airwaves of like of this of this other place, this otherworldly, you know, you know, I'll find my heaven on that beach, you know, that 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 moonlit beach, you know, and Roxy just you know, they really did, did that so beautifully, but they would do it using 50s rock and roll signifiers, you know, and then they go into this like really gnarly double time break where like Manzanera is playing this like, I mean, Manzanera is, he's another one, one of the most underestimated, underrated players in, uh, in, in rock, I feel, that had so many different vibes in his bag that he could dip into, you know, 
again, never took himself too seriously. You never really felt like he was he was giving it that much thought, but he was he kind of honored those who came before him in every lick and in every solo. And I, I kind of love that about him, you know. And then there was something that Roxy did that I think is a first. Maybe the crap rockers did it, but but Phil would be sending his guitar parts through Eno's synthesizers. So Eno would be like twiddling with the knobs, essentially producing the sound of the band. So so Phil would be getting otherworldly sounds. So he's he's a great player. On top of that, Eno's treating his parts uh, in a way that nobody's really done. Maybe Pink Floyd a little bit, you know, the Germans, but uh, certainly the first time that we've heard it in pop. Yeah. What I love about this song is that although it seems like uh, to be about some romantic optimism in the music, the three verses seem to detail the three stages of a relationship. So the beginning is the courtship, then you have the marriage, and then you have the breakup. Uh, and looking back on it in 1977, Brian dismissed it as a very trivial track, our 50s gesture type of thing. I wanted to ask you, though, uh, was there a moment or a song from your career that you would dismiss? Um, I mean, they all have their they all have their their roles to play, you know, and I think even the songs that you might put out that maybe I mean, Union of the Snake, for example, you know, I know that my own way isn't particularly isn't a popular song with the uh, with some of the band. But, you know, the album version, we kind of re rebooted it. Um, you know, not every song is going to be a, isn't is going to be great, you know, and sometimes they're just steps to get to the next one, you know, and sometimes you have to, I mean, most of our albums, I mean, I, I can listen to about half of them, frankly, you know, and, uh, you know, and by the time you get to an, by the time you get to the end of an album, you know, you're lucky if, if, if you like half of it, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, again, going back to this, I mean, the, these guys are so prolific. I mean, you know, subsequent to this album's release, you know, Eno's going to leave, he's going to go off, he's going to do a solo album, Brian's going to do, do a solo album, and then he's going to write, I think he's going to start to write the next album, which is going to come out in six months' time. And Stranded, I wish we were talking about that, because that's a masterpiece, and it's so different to this album. But but it's the first time you've got Phil as a co-songwriter, you've got Andy as a co-songwriter. Brian's like, I've got to let these guys in, I'm because I can't do it all myself. If I want it to be, if I want it to be good, but uh, no, you you know, there's just no way. Sometimes you've got to just punch the clock. But you know, you try to be as inspired as you can be at all times. But also, you know, with Duran Duran, you know, it's like it's like Nick can be super inspired by something, you know, and maybe I'm not so inspired, you know, maybe Simon's. So it's like finding that perfect storm where we're all equally excited. Um, by what we're was doing. There ever, was there ever something that you fought for that you were right that maybe the other guys weren't into? <laughs> oh God, I don't know. I don't. I, I I I I tend to think from the other way. Oh my God! Yeah. Thank God they taught me into that one. You know. Okay. Yeah. Tell me that. <laughs> what, what What did they have no, to talk I, you into? I can't. I can't think of anything <laughs> off the top of my head. But uh, you know, I mean, like it's it's you know we're 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 just we're just like mixing a new record now and. Um, you know, and it, it's and it's great to sort of feel the vitality. Uh, I mean, you know, my 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 stepdaughter is a music producer, and she she works with samples. You know, and she so she's producing tracks 
and she's amazing. She produces tracks with, you know, but she's sampling, she's using drum machines or whatever. And then she drops her voice in and I was playing her some of our new mixes. I said, you've got to understand that there's like four layers of guitar parts. There's electric bass, double track. There's, there's all these keyboards. There's these live drums, all these vocals. I mean, all this stuff that has to be managed and brought in, right, wrestled into, into order, which is so easy when you're dealing with like hip hop or techno, because you've really just got, it's, it's, it's so much easier. And I think that, as I said, going back to Roxy music, it's, it's very much the sound of, of, of five guys that really have got very different visions of mu- for music, but, but they, they see that this thing is, a, is the best vehicle for them at this time. So they have to be both of it and then, and, but also transcend it in a way. And I think that's what happens on this record. I mean, there isn't any any band member that you that you if that you can be aware of on this record that you don't go, holy shit, he is playing his ass off. I mean, that's you know whether it's the drummer or the bass player or the guitar player, and everybody's like fully present for sure. All right, final song on the record for your pleasure. It's interesting to note that this album came after the huge success of the non-album single uh, Virginia Plain, which we spoke of. So they had a big bump in fame. Like some of the others, it seems to ruminate on fame being a chance at immortality, as well as the realization that it's also momentary and fleeting. This does end uh, with a sample that I, this blew me away when I found this out. This ends with a sample of Dame Judy Dench reciting You Don't Ask, You Don't Ask Why from a recording of poetry reading she gave. Uh, I have to do this for my mom. Uh, Peter, play minute six, second 20. It's so faint. Uh, but, dude, my mom is so obsessed with Dame Judy Dench. If my mom went lesbian, 100% she'd do it for Dame Judy. 100%. Uh, what I also love is this included the opening lines of Chance Meeting from their debut album. Uh, and I think Elo, uh, Eno really shines on this song. I mean, your thoughts? Um I mean that 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 is a very interesting that that end section is in and of itself it's 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 a small meal in itself isn't it um I kind of like I made the note children of the corn devil worshipping <laughs> kind of had that hammer horror kind of feel to it um but you know there's a lot going on I mean by the time you get to the end of this song you know I mean it's it, there's a lot it's a it's a great song for paul thompson the drumming is is wicked and 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 they would always play that they would always play this song later on you know it be, it came back to them as a song of value um yeah i mean he's singing tara tara there's just a whole lot going on it's similar to bogus man in that it's very experimental you know, it doesn't it doesn't fit to any kind of song A B A B structure. I mean, it gave the album its title, which is I mean, it's a fantastic title. I think that uh, you know the concept behind the album uh, for your pleasure, the second Roxy Music album that was the legend on the artwork, and little things like that 
like make a difference when you're building up a fan base, when you're trying to differentiate yourself. It was a very crowded field in 1972, 1973 um, in Britain. You know, a lot of bands. You know, you had to really be, you had to, you know, you had to be different. You had to make your own, make a strong case for yourself. And, and, and artwork was a way that you could do that in a really, in a really powerful way. I think the, the artwork to this album is very strong and it's very, it's, 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 it's a reversal of the first album. You know, it's as exotic, but it's got, it's black where the other one's white. Um, and, uh, you know, I somehow, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he figured he was going to call the album for your pleasure. And then right at the last minute, it was like, Oh, we're going to need a song with that title. <laughs> you know, maybe this should be it. But yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's just, it's say ta to the old Roxy music because the next album's going to be so different to this one. I can't wait to listen to that. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table. Featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics, they all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. All right, you want to do some facts and get out of here? Sure. All right. On the opening night of this tour, Brian's girlfriend, mysterious transgender singer and model Amanda Lear, dressed in the same all-black leather outfit she wore on the cover, Walking a Panther. Wow, I like it. So just to bring up what we were talking about. Uh, so I've seen the uncensored version of Girls on Film that MTV wouldn't play. So I have to ask... What's the wildest thing that ever happened during or after a show? Oh, during or after a show. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, that, that video was wild, man. You know, I mean, the yeah, Girls dude. on Film video was wild. And I have to say, you know, it was like I learned that day that I was not cut out for porn. You know, that that was not, you know, that would not be an arena into which I would be taking my career. That like the idea of standing around you know, holding my guitar even, you know, around, you know, beautiful women as they took their clothes off. And, you know, that, that wasn't, that wasn't for me. It was, a, <laughs> I think we were all like, <laughs> you know, we're like, we're like, get us back to the suburbs fast. No, I mean, I don't even remember, man. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, there's a period of time where things are really crazy, you know, and, um, you, you know, and uh, there's a hyster- hysterical kind of level to to the band's success, but you know, there's nothing nothing terribly original about any of it, to be honest. Um, sure, you know, there's nothing that stands out to me. I mean, actually, there was always there was an anecdote that I like to tell about which which whenever I say this one, Nick says, "Oh my god, that's disgusting," um, and that is that um, we did a press conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had a cold, and I was like my streaming streaming throughout it and i went back to atlanta about two years later and this girl came up to me and she said yeah i was at that press conference and i i stole all your tissues because i wanted your cold (laughs) (laughs) i was like okay (laughs) did you Mm. get sick 
Did you get sick? Do you yeah. need a NyQuil? Okay. That is hilarious. All right. Uh, Brian has had difficulty processing the popularity of what many considered to be Roxy Music's best album. He said, it's awful to think that that's our high spot, only your second year of doing anything. Okay, so now, and I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast uh, about one of my favorite songs, you didn't play it outside land, so I want to talk about this. And one of the highest British honors was bestowed upon you guys when you did the theme song to the 14th James Bond film, 1985's A View to a Kill, and earned the Bond franchise its only Billboard number one to date. View to a Kill is one of my favorite fucking songs ever. Your bass line in that is so phenomenal, dude. Uh, so I wanted to ask you this. Uh, this was also, this song was also the last song the original five members recorded until your reunion in the 2000s. So this is a two-part question. Uh, one, why didn't you play it at Outside Lands? And two, how did that come about to be the last song? I can't believe we didn't play it at Outside Lands. Are you sure you didn't uh, miss it? I think it was in the encore. I mean, I, I was sober. Uh, I know I was sober. Yeah, okay. But no, I swear to God, dude. I swear to God. You can call, you can call my, the other That's comics bizarre. on the tour. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I'm not questioning that. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure we played it. If we didn't, I apologize. Next time it's for you. Well, how did it come about? I mean, you know, I was as big a fan of James Bond as I was of Roxy Music and uh, you know I had the opportunity I was introduced to uh, Cubby Broccoli and um, and offered our services you know and uh, you know I've just been such a big fan of those theme songs in the 60s you know the Goldfinger from Russia with Love, Diamonds are Forever, You Only Live Twice and I really fancied a crack at it and um, you know and it was a win-win for everybody quite honestly but a very difficult song to record and um you know, I got to know John Barry, um, and uh, it was a tricky. I mean, it was a, you know, it was it was it was a difficult song to write. It was a difficult song to record. You know, again, a, a, a lot of people, a lot of talent were involved in the making of that song. Um, that wasn't like we need to write a song. That was like we need to write a an epic worldwide number one. No pressure, you know. <laughs> so it's um, it, it, it's a lot to take on. But I'm very, I'm very proud of that track, and thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for noticing. It's uh, again, everybody's playing their, you know, everybody's playing to the best of their their knowledge, you know, and and and, uh, and it's not a show offy track either. Everybody's serving the song, whether it's Andy or Nick or myself, you know, it's like there's no solos in that track. It's a very tightly tightly arranged piece and allows for the orchestration and I think that's why everything you're saying is I think why I'm so drawn to it it's just it's there's, there's no filler it's just from the start to finish it's a perfect song uh, and there's something really cool about it is my dad used to set up like a little recorder and have me and my sister like sing songs or just like talk and so we'd have these recording of us and I have still have it of me not knowing any of the lyrics, but being like, you know, five, six years old, like, rock girl covers me, then <laughs> ski, baba to ski, but do, but. And even to make this all come full circle, I do this show called The Goddamn Comedy Jam where comedians do stand-up, then they tell a story about a cover song, and then they sing that cover song with a, with a live band. And with Corona going on, we haven't been able to do it, but we found this television studio kind of doing like, it's not Zoom, it's this, this new software technology where the audience can sing along and participate, we could see them. Uh, so it's almost virtual reality. And then when I was prepping 
to get ready for this uh, talk with you, I started like re-listening to a lot of Duran Duran, and I heard a View to a Kill again, and I was like, yeah, dude, I'm opening up the next show with a View to a Kill. So I'm so excited. But, I, but also, and to amend that too, you guys opened your set at Live Aid with that, right? Yeah, we did. And it was the first time we played it. So, but then, you, but then, but this is what I want to ask is because you guys split up right after that. So did you feel that there was anywhere higher you could go? Um, I think we just, we needed a break, you know, and it had just been a very intense few years. Um, you know, I was, I, I've been, I've been listening recently to, to a lot of later Bond themes, you know, and it's become, it's almost like, uh, like the Nobel prize, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like this year we're going to offer the theme song to Adele or Alicia Keys or Jack Black, you know, and Jack White, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. And, and, and actually it's really interesting to hear what people make of it. It just, it's just one of those, it's like a song contest that every producer musician kind of goes, Oh, that's interesting because it's, it's, it's very much about like drama and romance and it's got like a narrative and and you're given a title that you may or may not use you know but like it's 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 a really interesting especially if you're in the business of writing songs that you know month in month out you know to get that and i think it's one of the, one of the reasons why there are so many cool songs to have to have come if you if you listen to the james bond like title song story it's like oh man you know, there's some really great tracks in there. Did you ever, did you ever hear, like, I guess it was for Spectre, they asked Radiohead to take a crack at it, and they wrote this incredible song that is, honest to God, and I'm a huge Radiohead fan, it's like one of my favorite songs by them, and they didn't use it. But still, which is so great, is that Radiohead was like, we want to release it to everybody, we thought we did a great job, and it was such a good song. But it's like you said, it's very interesting to find out what they choose and what they don't choose and who's taking a crack at it. Absolutely. I, I, I don't know if you know the Alice Cooper man with a golden gun. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a man with a golden gun. I can only imagine it being like that with a snake on him. And, they, and then they ended up going. They were like, mm, this is a little this is a little too butch for us at this point in time. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, no, I mean, as far as Duran is concerned with Live Aid, I think we just needed we just needed some time off each other. Like we were talking about, I mean, again, bands, it's all about this this personality dynamic, you know, where everybody's got to find their way to sort of work together, you know, and you, you've got, I mean, you know, look at a band like Yes, you know, it's like they, they break up, they come together, but he's missing and then they go out and then they come together. It's like every... You know, it's like there was like the perfect lineup, which can never all be in the same room again. You know, so you get these like versions of and, um, you know, and, and with uh, with For Your Pleasure, it was just there was just one too many Brian's. Yeah, for sure. All right. So when Brian Ferry was 11, he won a radio competition to go see Bill Haley and his Comets play live. And it had a lasting effect on him. So I wanted to ask you, what was the first concert or musical moment that changed the course of your life? Mm, well, you know, I, I wrote in my book about the day that Nick and I went into Birmingham and we got tickets to see Roxy Music that night. And um, I was 14 and he was 12. And, uh, you know, we, we went by the theater uh, in the afternoon and we met these two kids. 
that were Roxy fans. You know, they were they had the Roxy badges and the scarves, and and we started talking to them, and they said, "Yeah, they're doing the sound check." And we were like, "Sound check? What's that?" And they said, "Come on!" And w- and they led us around the back of the theater, and there was like about twenty kids there, and you could hear behind this stage, behind the door, you could hear the band playing. And that was the first time I had any sense, oh, like when bands tour, they have to do like a rehearsal in the afternoon. And I'm, I'm like chatting, there's this like camaraderie amongst these, amongst these kids there. And then suddenly the door opens and this, the band walk out. And man, they, it was like the fucking Avengers walking out yeah. or the X-Men. It was like, <laughs> wow, you know, platform boots were in that year, yeah. you know. I mean, they were all like dressed like amazing. And, and hang on a second, what's that? It's a stretch Mercedes limousine. I've never seen one of those in my life. And they all pile into the, into the Mercedes. Then the cars, the car kind of cr- drives off up the, up the driveway. And some kid, some girl goes, they're staying at the Holiday Inn this way. And like 20 of us just run across. It's like a scene from a fucking Spielberg movie. It's like we all run across, we all run across the city. And we're like waiting for them under the awning of the Holiday Inn when they arrive. And that was like my first sense of like, wow, you know, these are human beings plus, plus, you know. And there was something about that. I mean, I just like, I thought that's what I want to do. I want to be in a gang like that. And, and I hadn't, you know, and it would be a, it would be a few years before I actually. I mean, you live that though too, man. You, I mean. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's. Yeah. 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 But like. But like I'm not at that. I'm not there where I think I'm going to be a musician and form a band. I'm not like I've got to have a few more years of like being that kid and just like wanting to see as many bands as I could, wanting to hear them sound check, wanting you know. I just I wanted I wanted to dig into the whole thing, the whole lifestyle thing. And then you know when I was 16, the Sex Pistols came along, and suddenly actually you didn't need. They lowered the admission price, if you like. Like you didn't need to know, you needed to three chords, three chords, A major, E major, D major, form a band, you know, and that was, oh, you, oh, you know what a minor seventh is? You can't come in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the less you know, the better you are. And suddenly, like, it's cool. And Nick and I were like, you know, we're, we're, we're making music of our own. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, all right. Brian Ferry unsuccessfully auditioned to sing in King Crimson because they needed a singing bass player, but they were so impressed by him that they helped Roxy Music get their first management deal. So I wanted to ask you, what rejection ended up turning out best for you? Well, we were turned down by several major labels at the beginning. I really wanted to be on Island, actually. I wanted Duran Duran to be on Roxy Music's label, and uh, they turned us down. And a couple of other labels did, but but by the time EMI made us an offer, we were really excited about about going with them. Um, I mean, you know, I'm 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 glad that I went through the formative years as a teenager, you know, because you're so elastic as a teenager, you know, and you can roll with disappointments, and you know, and also I'm glad that I did it with a bunch of guys, you know, that that like we had, you know, nothing was ever that bad. We could turn everything into a Monty Python sketch, you know, and it was kind of and it was kind of okay. Um, you know, as we get older, we get a little more everything gets a little more existential and you start getting in your head and you start, you know, stuff starts keeping you up at night. You know, I mean, I think you just you know, music 
like what you do, entertainment, it's like you've really got to want it. You've really got to want it because there are so many people that want to do it. So many people that want to do it. And, and, I, and I'm a big believer in partnerships. I mean, that's what we've been talking about. That's what we've been talking about, the power of the band, you know, on the, in, this, in this chat here. And for me, okay, so maybe we don't need to have drummers and bass players and keyboard players and guitar players to make interesting, cool music. But, but to, to that kid who's sitting alone in his room, programming the keyboards, programming the basses, programming the drums, you better find a partner, bro. You better find somebody that you can bounce your ideas off around because you will be up all night obsessing about every aspect of your career. And, um, you know, I also think that for me, st strong music is made by many minds working together. I've always felt like that. You know, and when you've got, when you've got the experience, I mean, you know, just the guys in Roxy Music, they all showed up. They were all kind of in their mid to late 20s when they started working together so they'd all been playing for like 10 15 years they're not like kids they're not kids like me they haven't just picked up a guitar or or the drums they've been playing a long time and they're bringing all of that expertise and you know putting it in putting it in the blender and and you know that for me is what why it produces such a satisfying brew if you will you know, and that's why when when we look at Motown or or Philly Soul, for instance, and you've got these dudes, you've got you've got seven, eight, nine, ten guys that are in squashed into the studio space, and every one of them's got twenty years of ex of playing experience, and that's what to me that's what makes music durable. You know, is that we're tapping into this this chemistry, you know, this human chemistry, which God knows we need a lot more of. All right. I I want I was gonna say I want to end it right there because what you just said is just so perfect, man. Um, but I want to ask this last one because I'm such a huge fan of your work. Uh, so the last fact: uh, the Smith singer and solo artist Morrissey told the British press he could only think of one truly great British album for your pleasure by Roxy Music. So I wanted to ask you: of what song are you most proud of? Oh, it's got to be Rio. It's got to be Rio because, um, you know, it's got it's got all these ideas, everything that we've talked about. You know, it's a six minute long song that is sort of masquerading as a pop song. But really, it's got all these really cool ideas. It's got this really amazing bass line and, and drum beat and fabulous synthesizers. And it's got this crazy saxophone solo that comes in at like four minutes. You know, but kind of, you know, it's got a it's got a lot of Roxy music in it. It shifts a lot of gears. It's not afraid to you know go to a motown beat halfway through it's it's like no we're not quitting at three minutes we're going we're going all out and um so it's that it's the confidence that i like about that song and you know you know the video's silly you know but but like the, the, the but the piece itself you know it's it's like it's everything we've been talking about for the last hour. Did you know it as as you guys were when you guys were starting to to put it together? Were you did you guys all know you're like holy shit like this is this is special? Um, well, you know, it was conceived in a particular way. It, it certainly wasn't conceived as a, as like a pop song. You know, it was really conceived of, as like a sort of curtains opening kind of like you know opening piece. Um, and I think it was like something, and because we didn't think it was a pop song, that gave us the courage to sort of 
blow it all out, you know, and have this like crazy breakdown. And then, you know, it, it shifts a number of gears. Um, you know, there were other songs that we'd be writing at that time where we'd be, we'd be thinking, okay, this can't be more than three minutes 20. And then that idea, then after Rio, really, then we're kind of being, we're, every time we start to write, we're like, this has got to be a hit. It's a real pain. You know, when, when like, oh my God, you know, if we don't make this one, we've got this, we set this bar now. Uh, or unless we were like, okay, this is the experimental track. <laughs> you know, again, that's something else I think Duran Duran learned from uh, from this album is that you can have you can have you know seven pop songs, and then you can have two really sort of strangely dark, interesting songs that that only really feel like they belong to to the the fans. You know what I mean? Then they're, they're not they're not for radio. And I mean, For Your Pleasure is very much about that. You've got you've got half of the record, which is like radio friendly and then you've got this other side which is never going to get on radio um but you know that's what that's what makes it interesting yeah i i can't thank you enough you know what i want to say is that anytime i ask you a question you knew how to spin it right back to roxy music dude you are the king of buttons you just boop done john i can't thank you enough buddy uh is there anything that you want to promote uh feel free no i'm good josh thanks i mean duran Durana. Well, I say that, and then again, let's put it this way, Duran Duran are mixing their umpteenth studio album currently, and uh, I'm so excited about it. It's, you know, you know, we're mixing. It's a really important time in the, in the coming together of the record. Uh, albums can be won or lost in the mixing. Um, but uh, I got eight songs in my inbox from London last week, and I'm like, Wow. You know, and it's and it's still because you know the ends, they got to justify the means. You know, it's uh, it's um, you know human relationships are, take a lot of work, and I think within you know within bands, you know, it takes a lot of work, and uh, you know, and we're talking about an album here where it was too much, and it had to give something had to give, and I think Brian came off stage somewhere you know, 10th show into the For Your Pleasure Tour and said, I am never going on stage with him again, you know? And that was the end of the Eno version of, of Roxy Music. But then think of all the ama most amazing music that Eno's been a part of that maybe we wouldn't have had if he'd have stayed in the band. Um, so, you know, I'm still a believer, man. I'm still a believer, so. Dude, you're awesome. Dude, I'm a believer. You you have made me a, a lifetime Roxy Music fan uh, so thank you, brother. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only John Taylor from Duran Duran. Yo, you can find all things Duran Duran on social media at Duran Duran and their website, DuranDuran.com. Also, like John said, guys, they got a new album coming out. I don't know exactly when he promoted it at the end, but dude, if you are a fan of dope shit, get up on that now. This week, our new music pick from music director Matt Pinfield is Declan McKenna. You're listening to his song, Daniel, You're Still a Child, from his new album, Zeros. Declan an English glam and indie rock musician who initially gained recognition for winning the Glastonbury Festival's Emerging Talent Competition in 2015. Declan lists Space Oddity, Era David Bowie, the psychedelic escapism of T-Rex, 
and the stardust-laden riffs and theatrics of Roxy Music as inspirations for his take on the glam rock sound. You can find links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you were in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on The 500, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. It kind of went between English and Australian a little bit. Let's go for Australian for the end. Next week, it's Our City Sound System Week as we go deep into the 2007 sophomore album, Sound of Silver. So y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the album, stay fleecy, doogle doogle, vote blue. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time. A secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts.